church. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing through our study in the book of Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 1, looking at verses 9 through 14. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the guys will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. Seeing how today is Super Bowl Sunday, I found a a video. (laughs) If church was like Super Bowl Sunday, name of the video. And so it has nothing to do with the study, but it was really funny. So (laughs) I got to show it to you guys. So here it is. so bad. That's why the title of my study this morning is Prayers for the Church. (laughs) That's right, prayers for me. Let's look at uh, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. We'll read 9 through 14. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be able to open Your Word and know, Holy Spirit, that You are here to instruct us, to teach us, all things pertaining to Yourself. Lord Jesus, thank You for this time. God, thank You for Your Word that gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. And we pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us or maybe listening to this message online that doesn't know You, Lord, that doesn't have a relationship with You, Father, we pray that they would come to know You today, that they would give their hearts and life to You. Bless our time together. We commit it to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's dark, it's cold, you've been thrown into prison and you don't know when you'll get out or when you'll eat your next meal. You bow your head to pray. What do you pray? For safety? For deliverance? A decent meal? Well, if you're the Apostle Paul, you'll be praying for something far different. You're going to talk to God about a group of people you've never seen, a city you've never visited, a church you haven't been a part of, and you pray this incredible prayer of blessing upon them that we just read together. Listen, the church of Jesus Christ is in desperate need of prayer. We need to be praying for one another, individually and praying for the church collectively. Because when the church is all that it's supposed to be, it will be making the greatest impact, not only in our city, but in the world. But it all starts with prayer. Praying for God to reach the world is an important prayer, but God has chosen to reach the world through His people. That's why Paul spent so much time praying for the churches that he established and the ones that he didn't establish. Praying for those individual believers that he knew within the fellowship because he knew the power of prayer. Verse 9 here, Paul says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Paul didn't give up in his prayers for this church. And I know there are times that we may be feeling like giving up. Perhaps it's been 10 years you've been, you've been praying for your son and maybe he hasn't turned back to the Lord. You've been praying for this healing and it just it's been a long time, eight months, and it hasn't happened. You've been praying a decade for your cat to run away, but it still hasn't. It's still there. keeps coming back. I think that after a while... We may think that, that God is not listening or that He's just refusing to answer, but we need to understand what He says in His Word in Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. His timing is not our timing. His plans are not our plans. So we need to continue to pray. It may have been six days, six years, or six decades since you started praying for someone. Don't stop praying. I heard a story about a mom who was talking on her phone to a friend who asked for prayer. Her little five-year-old girl bounced in the room and stood and listened for a moment. She hears her mom praying on the phone, so she said to her mom, Is that God on the phone? I need to talk to him too. Wouldn't it be great to just pick up the phone and, and talk to God? Well, in a sense, we can, and it's through prayer. Prayer is something we all need to be doing. It's not an option in the Christian life. It's a privilege. It's an adventure. It's a commandment. The Bible says that you should pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Jesus said men ought to always pray and to not faint. Prayer is communicating with and hearing from God. Listen, true prayer 
is when our will is aligned with the will of God and we pray accordingly. We want to keep those lines open to heaven to both speak to God and hear from God. And that's why Paul says here to this church in Colossae that we do not cease to pray for you. Now, praying without ceasing does not mean that you're on your knees all day long, 24 hours a day. Or that you need to find a prayer rug and face it in a certain direction and pray five times a day. No, praying without ceasing has it in that you are in view, viewing everything that comes into your life in relation to God. It's living with this continual awareness of God's presence with you in every situation. You know, some people look at the Lord as being just a part of their life on Sunday morning. I heard of a story of a fisherman who was backslidden. He went out fishing with some of his buddies who did not know the Lord at all. And they were fishing. As they were fishing, the storm rose up and it got worse and worse, so bad that they thought they were going to drown. So these buddies come up to the backslidden Christian and say, man, you've got to talk to God right now. Get us out of this mess. He says, guys, I've not prayed in years. I haven't been to church for a really, really long time. I don't want to pray. And they said, you have got to. He said, I can't. Well, they kept pressing him and pressing him. Finally, he said, all right, I'll pray. Here was his prayer. Oh, Lord, I haven't asked anything of you for 15 years. But if you help us now and bring us to safety to land, I promise I won't bother you for another 15. At least he was honest, I guess. But you see, God desires our lives to revolve around him. And everything you do and everything we do, we should be in constant communication with our Heavenly Father. We pray, oh Lord, I pray for this person who just cut me off and just about killed me. Lord, would you save him? He's got to not be a Christian the way he drives. Or Lord, as I pick up these few groceries, I am reminded of, of how much you blessed me and how you provided for me. And I just wanted to thank you, Lord. Oh Lord, as I go to work this morning, thank you for this job that you've given me. And by the way, would you save my boss? See, that's what it means to be praying without ceasing. When Paul looked around this world, he, everything he saw prompted him to pray in some way. And I tell you, if we look around the world, then we too are going to be prompted to pray. We need to be praying. I don't know how any Christian can look around this world and not pray. So Paul is going to help us understand the importance of prayer, but more so than that, the importance of intercessory prayer. Even in spite of the troubles we have on our own. I'd, I'd like to break this prayer down for us this morning in the five things that Paul prayed for for this church if you're taking notes. The first one is found in verse 9. Paul says there that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the first thing that Paul prays for this church is that they might know God's will, number one. Now, knowing God's will, it's, it's a popular subject among believers. We're always trying to find out what God's will is. Perhaps you've heard the story of the, a bishop from a century ago who announced from his pulpit that air flight was both impossible and contrary to the will of God. Unfortunately, Bishop Wright had two sons, Orville and Wilbur, and, and <laughs> Wright was wrong when it came to the will of God. We're always trying to find out what the will of God is. Should I keep this job or should I take this other job over here that's been offered to me? Should I, should I, I move from this house to this other house? Should I sell this car? Should I buy this other? Should I wait to start up this ministry or should I step forward to this? But, but knowing God's will for things like that are not as important as knowing that God loves you and that He's working out for you what is best for your life. 
Now the Lord has made known to us His will in Scriptures. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.9 that He has made, to us, made known to us the mystery of His will. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And again, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, we're told, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So to put it very simply, the will of God is to give thanks, to do right, not do wrong. That's it. That's the will of God in your life. It's that simple. Well, what about those other things in my life? You know, what about my job? What about my house? What about this ministry? What about God's will for me concerning those things? Listen, if you are doing what you already know is the will of God, then your decisions later will be in the will of God. Because the Bible says this in Psalm 1 verse 3, that the one who is walking in God's ways, studying God's word, will be blessed. Psalm 1 says that whatever he does shall prosper. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your path. My exhortation to us this morning, church, is to stop worrying about the decisions and start focusing on the discipleship. Stop fretting about whether to go left or, or just keep walking straight, walking with, with the Lord. Paul prays for this church that they may be filled with the knowledge of His will, and he goes on, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That Greek word for wisdom there is Sophia. That it's not just more knowledge, but the ability to apply that knowledge to real life. It's the capacity to understand and as a result to act wisely. Man, that's a great thing to pray for. Because as a pastor, I often see a breakdown between what people know and what people do. I talk to people who are struggling in different areas, you know, and, and maybe in their marriage. And I'll say, well, let me show you what the Bible says about this. And I'll say, well, Pastor, I know what the Bible says about that. And they proceed to quote me the scripture. And I think, well, if you know this, then why aren't you doing it? See, they have the capacity to understand, but they don't act wisely. If you know what the Bible says, then we need to be applying it to our lives. James tells us in James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only because you deceive yourself. That's why Paul also prays for spiritual understanding here. Spiritual understanding means understanding how to apply the principles of God's word to our daily lives. And we'll look more at that in chapter 2. So Paul's prayer for them is number one, to know God's will, which simply means to know God and his word. And then number two, Paul's prayer is that they would walk as to please God. Look at verse 10. Paul prays for this church that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. Now we know that the Bible tells us in Romans 8, verse 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you're living after your flesh, if you're not putting God first in your life, there is no way on earth that you're going to please God. In fact, the Bible says you cannot please God. But what does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him? Well, if we do the first, then the second will follow. If we're walking you know, worthy of the Lord, will be pleasing Him. Walk speaks of our conduct. It's how we live our lives from time to time until we're saved, until we go to heaven. It's a walk worthy of the Lord. In other words, our walk should match our talk. Our works should match our words. Not that we're saved by good works, but most certainly we are saved for good works. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's 
uh, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. We're told in Titus 3, verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. In other words, our work must flow from our walk. That's pleasing to the Lord. To walk worthy of the Lord is to love, cherish, and worship Him in a way that affects the way that you live. And sadly, we see today there are those that name the name of Christ who are constantly asking questions such as, well, can I do this and still go to heaven? Is it okay for me to be a Christian and, and do this? And they want an excuse to compromise with the world to some degree, but they don't want to miss the boat to heaven. They have the conviction of the Holy Spirit that what they're doing is wrong, that it's not pleasing to the Lord, but because they're more interested in pleasing self rather than God, they wrestle with this guilt and compromise all the time. But what they fail to realize is that if they would just seek to live a life pleasing to the Lord, then they wouldn't have that struggle with the guilt and the compromise, and their lives would be blessed. There's a peace that you can come to know when you're seeking to please the Lord and all that you do. So the question shouldn't be, how much can I get away with in a worldly sense and still go to heaven? But how much can I give of myself fully and completely to God here on earth and pleasing to Him thoroughly? Now, with that said, sometimes walking in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord is not going to be pleasing to those around you. Your co-workers, you know, they know that you're against abortion because murder doesn't, you know, please the Lord. And because of that, you're hated. You stand up for traditional marriage, maybe in your workplace between a man and a woman, because that's the Lord's will and it pleases the Lord. But you're told you're intolerant and you're unloving. Loving the Lord, serving the Lord, standing up for righteousness doesn't always make friends. But God didn't tell us to go into all the world and make friends. He said go into all the world and make disciples. And that will include standing up for what is right. See, the attacks may come. You may get it because if you're standing up for the Lord and you desire to please the Lord. But don't let that stop you. Sure, you may not be pleasing those around you when you take a stand for righteousness and say, sorry, I can't have a part of that. You know, God's word prevents me from doing that. I don't agree with what, what, what you're saying. It's contrary to my God and it was worth. But my point is this. God gives us the choice. Are you going to please God or are you going to please man? If you're walking worthy of the Lord, your heart's going to be to please the Lord and all that you do. So Paul prayed, number one, that they might know God's will. Number two, that they would walk as to please God. And now number three, uh, Paul's prayer is that they would work to bear fruit. Paul says in verse 10, his prayer for the church is that it would be fruitful in every good work. See, fruit is a byproduct of righteousness. It's a mark of every redeemed individual. Jesus said in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's the evidence that you're a disciple of, of Jesus Christ. Now, when we speak of fruit, what do we mean? Well, the Bible uses the term fruit in many different ways to describe a number of attributes that should be in a Christian's life. Let me give you three examples. The first one is our changing conduct and character is a kind of fruit. Galatians 5, 23, we should all know this. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're a true believer... This fruit should be evident in your life. There shouldn't be hatred towards anyone. There shouldn't be inner turmoil in your life over people that have wronged you. 
Your life shouldn't be spinning out of control. If you're walking in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in your life. So our changing conduct is evident of fruit in our lives. Next, what we say is also a kind of fruit in our lives. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 34 and 35. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we dedicate the words that come out of our mouths to the Lord, they can be a, a powerful force for good and produce lasting fruit. But left unchecked, unyielded to the enemy, the tongue is the most destructive weapon on the face of this earth and it will only produce rotten, smelly, moldy fruit. And I would say the biggest battle over the tongue, I would say, you know, if you're married, is in our marriages. Because we allow the Holy Spirit to control our tongues out in public when once we get home, alone with our spouses, it's like anything goes and we can really hurt the ones we love the most with our tongues. We need to set our guard over what we say, especially at home. The psalmist prays this in Psalm 141.3. Set our guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Not more anger to the hearers, or not more resentment. Grace to the hearers. So our changing conduct and character is a kind of fruit that we say is uh, kind of fruit. What we say is a kind of fruit in our life. Next, the third thing I want to point out: winning others to Christ and helping them grow spiritually is fruit. Paul says this in Romans one thirteen. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you, just also just as among the other Gentiles. In the Proverbs 11.30 we read, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. See, when God gives us the privilege of leading someone to Christ, that's spiritual fruit in your life. And I have to ask you, have you ever led someone to Christ? I read a statistic that 95% of all Christians have never led another person to Christ. And I think, well, why is that? And I think it's because we haven't actually asked the the person, do you want to receive Jesus Christ right now? Maybe we've shared with them our, our story, our testimony. Maybe we even shared with them the gospel. But we've never taken it that, that next step. We say, oh man, there's my, here's, my, here's the gospel. Here's, here's, here's you know, my testimony. And, uh, and uh, 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 do you want to come to church with me? Uh, 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 I got to go. I'll be praying for you. How about taking the next step? Hey, would you like to accept Christ right now? Why don't we do that? I think you know, some say, well, because we're afraid they're going to say no. I think it's because we're afraid they're going to say yes. <laughs> now what do I do? Well, now you, you have the privilege to pray with them. And you have the privilege of seeing them pass from darkness to light. You have the opportunity to watch them grow spiritually. And in the process of doing that, you'll discover or perhaps rediscover some truths of your own. What an exciting thing. That's a way of bringing forth fruit to God. But let me say this. Even if you're not praying that prayer, leading people to Christ, when we are praying for the salvation of people, when you're praying, when you're sowing those seeds in other people's lives of faith in Christ, that's also part of the process of having fruit in your lives. 
So as we examine our own lives, do we ask, do we ask ourselves, is there fruit in my life, good fruit? Are people tasting my life and seeing good things? Jesus said this in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Fruit cannot be produced in your life on your own. It's a basic horticultural fact that branches that have been cut off and thrown on the ground is not going to miraculously come to life and produce fruit. You have to be connected to the branch, to the tree. The same thing is true for fruit in our lives. We've got to abide in Jesus, be tied to, connected to Him. If we aren't, we produce no fruit and we are, and when we are, we produce much fruit. It's just the way it works. Pretty simple. Okay. Back to the prayer. Paul's prayer has been, number one, that they might know God's will. Number two, that they would walk as to please God. Number three, that they would bear fruit. And the next thing that Paul prayed for uh, this church, number four, is that they would increase in the knowledge of God. Look at verse 10 again. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Listen, the Bible tells me everything I need to know about God. As I study the Scriptures, God reveals Himself to me. I realize that according to 2 Peter 1.3. As His divine power, He has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue. To me, that's one of the greatest things about the Christian life is that we can actually grow in the knowledge of God. You don't get to a point and say, that's it, that's all I know about God. No, our whole lives can grow. We grow in our relationship with Him. God is not some out there distant force, but He is close, He's near, we can know Him through His Word. And I think it's real important for us from time to time as you're studying God's Word and reading it to ask yourself this question, what is this section of Scripture telling me about God? What does this section of Scripture want me to know about God? I mean, think about this passage we're going through right now. What does this section of Colossians tell us about God? Well, it tells us that God is approachable. It tells us that God wants to commune with us through prayer. It tells us that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives in which we can know and walk in. And tells us, it tells us there are things that we can do to please God that our actions can bring Him joy. See, if you approach your study time in God's Word that way, you're going to be blessed. You can't say, well, I don't get anything out of the Bible. I mean, what you'll get out of the Bible is a picture of God that will blow your mind. And you'll gain more knowledge of God and you'll grow more and more. And so your love for God grow. That's why Paul prayed for these saints that they would grow in the knowledge of God. Pastor Kent Hughes had said this, A church which is growing in the knowledge of Christ and His will and walking worthy of Him will do great things. I, I like that. I want our church to do great things. Now what happens, Paul prays for next, is, is the power that makes all this happen. Look at verse 11. He prays that they would be strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now this is our last point that Paul prayed for. His prayer was that they would know, number five, His glorious power. I like that. Folks, Christianity is a, a religion of power. Without God's power working in you, nothing that God asks you to do will make any sense. You won't be able to accomplish it. Why? Because God's purposes require God's power. I've always liked the story about a logging foreman who sold a farmer a chainsaw guaranteed to cut down 50 trees a week 
A week later, the farmer, unhappy farmer, came to report that the power saw must be faulty. It averaged only three trees a day. Well, the foreman grabbed the saw and pulled the cord, and the saw promptly started up. The startled farmer shouted, Hey, what's that noise? In the same way, God's purposes require God's power. And that's exactly what God supplies. And the way this verse is worded in the Greek is really very cool. The word strengthened here in verse 11 is a present participle. It signifies a continuous action. You know, it's not like God's power is just booster rocket, that, that's it, and then it's gone, you're kind of floating on your own. It's not like that. It's a continuous action. Then there's the word might, it's the word dunamis, which we get our English word dynamite from. This speaks of God's, uh, you know, miracle working power. So Paul is praying that God would continuously provide us with dynamite power according to his glorious explosive strength. That's a great prayer. I think most of the time when we think about God's being strengthened by God's supernatural power, we're thinking about ministry things. We're thinking about, you know, taking the gospel around the world and, and, and preaching to multitudes and, and Lord doing miracles. And, and those are things to, to, to pray about and to have power for. But that's not the case here. Note specifically what the power is for. The prayer is for power, and Paul says, for all patience and long suffering with joy. Wow. We need power for patience, for long suffering, and we need to do it with joy. Man, we definitely need need the Lord's power for that. Patience here is the ability to handle difficult situations. Long-suffering is the ability to handle difficult people, and not just handle them, but to handle them with joy. Now, this really blesses me, because this tells me that this is something that God has given me this power for. It's His will for my life, to have patience, to have long-suffering, to have this with joy. It tells me that God is interested in every aspect of our lives. So that when I face difficult people, trying circumstances, instead of the first thing I pray for is, Lord, get me out of here, <laughs> I can pray, Lord, fill me with the power to be patient. Lord, fill me with that power to be long-suffering and to be long-suffering with joy. Instead of praying, God, remove this person from my life, get me out of this relationship, Lord, give me the power to love. See, God may desire for me to be powered up supernaturally to make it through to strengthen me to serve that other person with joy. I like what Pastor Robert Gramaki had said in his commentary. Patience and long-suffering without joy will lead to depression and a defeatist attitude. Joy gives optimism, triumph and trust. The Christian must believe that God is working out His sovereign purpose through the situation. Listen, God knows what's best for us. And it's not always going to be rescuing us out of tough situations. But he will supernaturally supply what we need to get through them. And that's how we grow. That's how we flourish. That's how we have opportunity to shine for the Lord. It's through those trials that we face. Because without patience, without long-suffering, without joy, my overall witness is really not going to be that good. And what kind of witness for Christ are you when someone walks up to you and you're just kind of grumpy and quick-tempered and you have no joy? I mean, who wants to listen to a grumpy Christian? Oh, praise the Lord. It's a great day today. (laughs) Really? What's wrong with you? That's why we need to pray. Pray for empowerment, for patience and long-suffering with joy. And you can pray believing because we know that this is the will of God. 
What a great prayer Paul prayed. I like what Warren Wiersbe says in his commentary concerning this prayer. As we review this marvelous prayer, we can see how penetrating it is. We need spiritual intelligence if we are going to live to please God. We also need practical obedience in our walk and work. But the result of all of this must be a spiritual power in the inner man, power that leads to joyful patience and long-suffering with thanksgiving. Have you been praying this way lately? If I haven't, I, I want to be. Then fall, fall. Paul finally ends his prayer focusing on thankfulness. Look at verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love and whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Man, that's a lot to be thankful for. Are you a thankful person? Henry Jowett, a British preacher from generations ago, wrote this. Gratitude is a vaccine, an antitoxin, and an antiseptic. I like that. What does he mean by that? Well, gratitude or, or thankfulness is like a vaccine. It can prevent the invasion of the disgruntled or discouraged spirit. Like an antitoxin, gratitude can prevent the effects of the poison of cynicism and, and criticalness and grumpiness. Like an antiseptic, a spirit of gratitude or thankfulness can soothe and heal the most troubled spirit. In other words, a thankful heart goes a long, long way. Finally, I want to point out two things here that, we, that God has given to us to, and why we should have thankful hearts. And then we'll close and enter into a time of communion. The first thing we're to be thankful for is in verse 12, that God has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. I like this Greek word for qualified. It means to authorize, to make sufficient, to empower, to authorize. God has given to us believers His stamp of approval, His authorization for entry into His kingdom. Think about that. I think about the Super Bowl this afternoon you know, or this evening. It's like Clark Hunt, the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs. He's authorized you, this would be great, to have 50-yard line seats you know, on the, for the Super Bowl. In fact, He's given you access to the locker room after they win and they celebrate their win today. Why? Well, because the owner has made you a part of the team. He's given you access. He's given you authority to be a part of the chief's kingdom. Well, in the same way, what Jesus has done for us is the same way. He's qualified you. He's given you authority. You are part of the family of God, God's kingdom, our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. But notice what else he has done. He has delivered us. He has qualified us. The emphasis is on being a work of God. Nothing you have done. It's God alone and God who has qualified you for the kingdom. You know, it's kind of the opposite if you want to get a, a car loan or a home loan for your house. To get a home loan or a car loan, you have to do something. You have to have some sort of credit history, a, a bill paying history. You're qualified based off of your performance over a long period of time. That's not how it is when you come to Christ. In fact, prior to coming to Christ, you were bankrupt. You're in bankruptcy. You're spiritually bankrupt. Your performance over a long period of time has not been good. It's been below grade level, below God's standard of perfection. Your credit scores are minus 2,000. That's why you needed someone else to qualify for you, to pay the price in your place. That's why God sent His Son. 
to redeem us, to pay the price, to fund our account with new life, forgiveness of sin, and an inheritance in heaven. That's the difference between every other religious system out there today in Christianity. Every other religious system tries to give you the tools or the path or the techniques that will enable you to qualify yourself for the kingdom. The bottom line is you can't qualify. There's not enough good works for you to do. I don't care how many doors you knock on. I don't care how many you know pieces of literature you hand out. How many trips to Mecca you make. How many hours of meditation you do. You are not going to get it done. Because the beauty of Christianity, God says, what you can't do for yourself, I'm going to do for you. I will qualify you for the kingdom. I will provide salvation that is necessary for you to get in. And, and what this means is not only is God going to get us to heaven, but we're going to be fully funded when we get there. <laughs> Isn't that great? We're going to have all the resources that we need to fully enjoy it. God, by His grace, qualified the unqualified to share in the inheritance. Peter refers to this in 1 Peter 1.4 as an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Man, that's a lot to be thankful for. I can't wait. But wait, there's more. The second thing we can be thankful for is because, verse 13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Again, prior to coming to Christ, our lives were dominated by this evil world system run by the evil, wicked ruler, the devil, and fed by our own fallen, sinful, fleshly desires. We were Christless, hopeless, godless, living in darkness. Our minds were given to futility. Our understanding was darkened. We were cut off from the life of God, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, immoral, impure, and greedy. And the only thing we were qualified for was to receive God's wrath and judgment. But thanks be to God, it says here, He has delivered us from the power of darkness. God delivered us. He intervened on our behalf. He set in motion a plan to rescue us and not only set us free from the bondage of sin, but to draw us to Himself. We've been taken out of the domain, out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. That's salvation from darkness to light. How could God do this? By two specific things. Verse 14. And whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. I love it. The word redemption there is a New Testament word that you have to understand. It means to deliver by payment of a ransom. It used to be used in, in uh, reference to a slave. It was the price that they would pay to buy someone out of slavery. The idea is that we were slaves to our own sin. That is what, what was keeping us bound in this dominion of darkness. God was determined to pay the price that would buy us our freedom. What was the price? What was the ransom that was due? Well, the wages of sin is death. So someone had to come and die the death that we deserved. Someone had to come and bear the wrath and penalty that our sin deserved. That someone was Jesus Christ. The ransom was paid through His blood on the cross. Because Jesus paid the ransom that our sin deserved, He can now offer us a full and complete, as Paul says, forgiveness of our sins. That word for forgiveness here, Paul uses, is a compound Greek word that means to send away. Don't you love that? That's what God does with our sins. Sent them away. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sin from us. He's able to bury them in the deepest part of the sea and remember them no more. Church, that's what God has done with your sins, with my sins. They're history. They've been removed. They'll never be an issue again. That's why you're qualified for the kingdom. 
This is why you are now an inheritance of the saints in the light, a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in the light. That's why we can be thankful. And that is why Paul prayed this prayer, that we may know God's will, that we would walk as to please God, that we would work to bear fruit, that we would understand the word better, and that we would know his glorious power. All this because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Listen, every person on earth belongs to two kingdoms, one of two kingdoms. Either the kingdom, the domain of darkness, or the kingdom of Jesus. They have one of two fathers, either the devil or the Lord. There's no middle ground. You must be the child of one or the other. You must be a citizen of one kingdom or another. Jesus wants you to be a citizen of his kingdom. He wants you to be a child of God. He wants you to be in his kingdom by giving his life to save yours. He paved the way. He opened the door for you. Now what is asked of you is simply to repent of your sin, which means to change your mind, stop the direction you're going, turn to Him, receive Him, sign your name on the transfer papers. Now many people refuse, they refuse to repent, and as a result, they won't receive Him. But some will. Jesus put it this way in John 1, 11 through 13, that Jesus came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen, today is the day to receive him. Today is the day to have your citizenship transferred. Today is the day to have all of your sin forgiven. Today is the day of salvation. If you're not giving your life to Jesus Christ before we enter into time of communion, now's the time to make it right with the Lord. If someone's listening to this message on a podcast online, now is the time to give your life to the Lord, if you're not giving your life to the Lord. But for those of us that have been born again, we've got so much to be thankful for, and that's what communion is going to do for us, thanking Him. Let me read it again. We can thank Him that He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us unto the kingdom of the Son of His love, and whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to spend time in communion with you, Lord. We thank you for the privilege, Lord, of knowing you, having our sin forgiven, Lord, and having an inheritance in heaven that will not fade away, Lord. We thank you for this life now, Lord, that you've given to us, Lord, that you have delivered us from the power of darkness. Lord, you have conveyed to us the kingdom of your Son and of his love. Lord, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And that's what communion is about, Lord. We recognize that. Going back to the cross, remembering what You did for us upon that cross, Lord, and being thankful for it. Lord, cleanse our hearts, cleanse our minds. Right now, Lord, cleanse our sin, anything that maybe have separated us from You, Lord. As we come to this communion table, we want to be Uh, just open before you. We want to take all of our cares, all our concerns, and just cast them at your feet, knowing that you care for us. Thank you, Lord, for the cross, what it represents. Thank you, Lord, for your Son. Bless this time of communion, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.